Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm film scholar and goat-heady badness, Noelle LaCroix. And I'm story expert who went to the dark side, but just to pick up a few things, Lonnie Diane Rich. And we are here today to talk about Bring On the Night, the 10th episode of season seven. Bring On the Night aired on December 17th, 2002, and was written by Marty Noxon and Douglas Petrie and directed by Michael Grossman. Still Pretty is a fully spoiled, full-spectrum Buffy podcast, so if you haven't seen all of the show, go take care of that and we'll board up the windows until things are less hellmouthy. Stupid stubborn daddy. Let's go on patrol. In Bring on the Night, everyone is gathered in the Summer's House living room trying to research the first as Xander engages in the endless Sisyphean task of replacing the front windows. The research is fruitless, however, there's no information about the first, and Anya isn't taking the first word on its level of ultimate badness. I'm bad, baddie, bad, bad, bad. Does it make you horny? Buffy knows that the first is true evil, and they need to find it before it makes Spike do something terrible. Buffy falls asleep on the table and dreams of Joyce, who tells her she can't win if she doesn't rest. Buffy says she is the first, but then Xander wakes her up and asks her what she saw. She says it was nothing. Meanwhile, the bringers are chanting and dragging Spike through an underground lair to get kicked around by the uber vamp while the first takes the form of Drew and taunts him. Little girls test so easily, like pink paper. Till then we'll have our way with this one. Got it coming, guys. The next day at Buffy's house, Anya and Dawn try to wake up Andrew by throwing water on him. He finally wakes up and Buffy interrogates him for information. He complains about how the first is not a very evil name, but then Buffy makes him lead them to the seal in the school basement. They see the Catherine wheel covered in blood and decide to cover up the seal. As Buffy and Dawn are on the way out, they bump into Principal Wood, who is also down in the school basement with a shovel. That's some full-service principaling. Back at the house, Willow does a spell to locate the first, and it takes her over, telling everyone they only make it stronger. It releases Willow and she falls to the floor, begging Buffy not to let it use her to hurt people. Buffy decides she needs to go find the first, but when she opens the door, it's Giles with three young girls in tow. Sorry to barge in. I'm afraid we have a slight apocalypse. Giles has his exposition fairy dialogue ready to roll. He tells them that they're potential slayers, that the first is killing them all with the plan that once it does, it'll just take out Buffy and Faith, and that's it, no more slayers. He tells them about the Watcher's Council being blown up, and all that's left is a couple of books Giles stole, the only volumes that have any information about the first. He says it's non-corporeal, it can change form, and it only appears as dead people. It works through people it can manipulate, and through the bringers. He has no idea how to defeat it, but if they don't, the balance between good and evil will be destroyed. So now, it's up to Buffy to stop it. You're the only one who has the strength to protect these girls and the world against what's coming. A young slayer named Kennedy complains that this is a pretty stupid plan, and Buffy agrees. They need Spike. In the dungeon, the uber vamp. I feel like we need a better name for this dude. How about Cuthbert? I love it, Cuthbert. Anyway, <laughs> Cuthbert, Birdie to his friends, drowns Spike in a ritual pool while the first, as Drew, taunts him some more and then clicks her tongue at Cuthbert who grabs Spike again and drags him to the pool. Meanwhile, Buffy and Giles walk through town looking for the old Christmas tree lot where she found the bringers the first time. At the house, everyone's trying to work out sleeping and food arrangements for the potentials. Meanwhile, Buffy and Giles wander through an empty lot and Buffy falls through the ground. She explores the cave to come up against Cuthbert who kicks her ass hard and is immune to staking, but not, as we discover when she crawls up to the surface, sunlight. Cuthbert slinks away and Buffy and Giles go home where she makes him dump his exposition in front of everyone. What she fought was a primal vampire, the Turrican, and is probably there as an agent of the first. Buffy goes to work, where she searches for evil on Diet Google and gets caught by Principal Wood. She tells him she's searching for evil movies, and he says he doesn't like evil, even just in movies. As he leaves, Buffy asks, What kind of movies do you like? Oh, me? Mysteries. I love finding out what's underneath it all at the very end. Back in the cave, first Drew continues to taunt Spike, telling him he needs to choose a side, while Cuthbert slaps him around, and there's no real progress on the story. 
Buffy falls asleep at work and dreams about Joyce, who tells her the evil isn't coming, it's here, and nothing can stop it. Buffy wakes up to find an angry kid who's offended that she slept through his counseling session, and Principal Wood watches through the very evil Venetian blinds because he's totally evil, y'all! At the house that night, Xander boards up the windows because there's really no point in replacing them since Cuthbert is probably on his way to kill them all anyway. Willow feels bad that she can't do magic and wants to help. Kennedy asks for weapons for the potentials. Andrew tries to convince everyone that he's good again and wants to be untied. I'm good again. And when were you good before? Upstairs, Giles goes to talk to Buffy, watch the sunset, and tell her that everyone's depending on her. No pressure. Molly comes up to tell them that Annabelle ran off. At a construction site, we see Annabelle come up on Cuthbert, who snaps her neck. Later, Buffy finds Annabelle's dead body, and Cuthbert attacks, beating the hell out of Buffy. She limps off and goes into an empty warehouse to grab tools and fight some more with Cuthbert, who roundly kicks her ass. She dumps a pallet full of steel rods on him and starts to run off, thinking that's enough. But it's not. Cuthbert is swole, y'all. Cuthbert shrugs off the steel rods and tosses Buffy around a bit until a wall and a bunch of cement blocks fall on her, and then he runs off because of reasons. Later, Xander, Willow, and Giles find a bloodied Buffy in the rubble. Oh, God almighty. Back in the cave, Drew continues to taunt a bloodied and grunting Spike, asking if he knows why he's alive. She says it's because she wants him alive. She's not done with him. He says it doesn't matter. He's done with her. And what makes you think you have a choice? What makes you think you will ever be any good at all in this world? She does, because she believes in me. Back at the Summer's house, Buffy sits on the couch, black-eyed and bloody, while she listens to Willow and Giles talk about how she's so messed up and she might die, and what do they do if she can't fight this thing? Giles says he's not sure they can fight it, and Buffy says he's right, and starts to sound defeated by saying she's beyond tired and beyond scared, and then the speech takes a turn, and she says they're an army, they declared war, and the Hellmouth will swallow her whole, but it'll choke on her and she'll kill it! There is only one thing on this earth more powerful than evil, and that's us. Okay. Sounds good. Who wants cookies? All right. So, Noelle, here we are with uh, with Bring on the Night, which is an episode of Buffy. <laughs> it uh, is an episode had, of Buffy it is in the seventh season. Buffy. I don't know. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about this episode? I mean, I don't even know. This is a whole lot of foundation laying, but not a lot more than that, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's just hard to get really worked up about this episode at all. Um, yeah, I like. I actually kind of like that we're making Principal Wood look shady without the doop de doop de doo sneaking around music. Um, <laughs> and when you know he's not actually evil, his "I was just holding the shovel for a friend" thing is actually kind of funny. But in the context <laughs> of we don't know what's going on yet. It's just, I don't know. It's not great. I don't mm-hmm. like it. I yeah. love Ms. Summer's Apocalypse Prep Academy, but mostly <laughs> meh. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is the bridge episode for this season, right? You know, which is a, a, basically a bridge episode is um, an episode that takes the first half of the season. In this case, you know, all of our stuff setting up the first, having all of these questions um, and brings us into the second half where we have more answers that then inspire, of course, some more questions. But we know what we're fighting and we're gearing up to fight. Um, and the thing is, like a bridge episode does not have to be boring. But sometimes it is. Um, in season three, <laughs> the bridge episode was Consequences. When Faith deserts Team Buffy and goes to work for the mayor, that's awesome. That's a great bridge episode that sets us up for the second half of the season in which Faith is going to be the antagonist and not the buddy. Um, in season four, it is the notably terrible Doomed, uh, where Buffy learns about <laughs> Riley and the initiative and... There you go. Um, season five, the bridge episode was Checkpoint, where we find out that Glory is a god. Checkpoint is awesome episode. Um, season six, it was Wrecked. Buffy and Spike start sleeping together. Willow gets all high on the magics and hits her rock bottom, right? So this is our transitional episode from the first half of the season into the second half, where we're actually going to be facing whatever that huge challenge is. We are identifying the challenge of the second half of the season and how we're going to face it. Um, so, I mean, clearly, as we've just demonstrated, bridge episodes are a mixed bag you know um this episode is not 
terrible. I mean, it's not doomed, but it's also not checkpoint. Yeah. This is where we get all this background information and make Giles exposition fairy his little British ass off all episode. Um, it's so much information. Um, and not one, but two Mr. X uh, are at play that will take episodes to work out. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, but we have the first just sitting there taunting and tormenting Spike and that's it. It is basically three scenes of na 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 na. And I mean, <laughs> it's Drew. It's chance to see Juliet Landau do her thing with it, which ain't nothing. But it's also not really story, you know, yeah. happening there. So yeah. um yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, we need this information. Yeah, we need to move this thing forward. I like that we have a very serious threat for Buffy. I liked it a lot more when it was psychological and not physical, but you know. Okay. All right. I mean, like, I'm not the story expert here, but it feels more like a roundabout or a traffic circle to me than a bridge. It feels like, <laughs> it feels like, yeah. you know, when the, when your, when your GPS is like, take the second exit and you're like, wait, what? And then you have to go around yeah. the traffic circle because the, the second exit is just, you went straight. Yeah. Through their t- like, mm-hmm. it feels like that to me. Like, we just have to, like, we yeah. missed the exit because we didn't understand what it was. And now we just have to circle for a whole circle. Oh, my God. You know, and then move forward. I don't know. <laughs> Weird metaphor. But yeah. it's just, I'm like, why? Like, we're just, we're just doing this little roundabout with things that we already kind of know on the one hand. And then on the other hand, it's like, here's Giles with all the information that yes. we could have. We couldn't we couldn't have established that all along or something. I don't know. But we're doing a thing like we're doing this thing with Giles. We're like the last Giles that we saw was about to get his head whacked off. And now Giles is here in Sunnydale, not touching anything. You know, like what, what is going on? It's so stu- And this is the thing. Like, y'all know how uh, secrets, lies and Mr. X make me crazy. You yeah. Know? And so I'm going to I'm going to do a little story expert stuff, a little narrative stuff. The writers out there may appreciate this because I will, in essence, be saving you from yourselves. And as I say that, I say that as a writer <laughs> who has done this bullshit because you watch it and you think that's how it's done. And everybody starts out as a mimic and we mimic this bullshit. The first two of these things that I hate, secrets, lies and Mr. X, um, are forms of false conflict, which is a conflict that can be cleared up by one honest conversation. Um, And the last is the writer not being honest with the audience, which honestly, to me, sucks even more. Um, Not that everyone, like characters in a story, have to always be honest. Of Mm -hmm. course, characters can lie, but the writer should never lie to the audience. And if we have two people where one conversation will clear up a misunderstanding, you know, and clear all that up. That's just false conflict. That's not helping you at all. Um, so what this means is that if you as a writer want to set up a twist, you have to write it so that it can be equally valid for two reads, the one you want your reader to presume, and then the actual truth, right? So that's what we're doing here. We have a misdirect, which we're trying to make into a twist. But these are both actually false Mr. X. And what I mean by that is the presumption that the audience is led to believe is the thing that would be the twist if it were true. Mm -hmm. But it is not. Like the twist would be that Giles was actually the first all along, except he's not the first all along. So we're setting up to be like all suspicious of Giles. You know, Mm -hmm. we see Giles. The presumption would be that he's alive, that he's our Giles. But they did these two things. The bullshit cliffhanger in Sleeper, where we saw the axe flying at his head with him being apparently completely unaware that he was about to be beheaded. Um, And the fact that he touches no one and nothing when he shows up. No hugs. Annabelle handles the books. All of that, right? Yep. So if Giles was the first, which would be an awesome twist. I would be heartbroken because I love Giles. But an awesome twist. Um, No cliffhanger. And this small detail that he doesn't touch anything would allow us as the audience to move through the story on our presumption that when we see Giles, he's alive. Um, so that when it's revealed that he was Agatha all along, like it's a gut punch. But if we go back and watch all the footage over again, then we see that they played fair. No flag on the play. Giles didn't touch anything. It's fine. But he's not dead. So what we're saying is that he's there for days without anyone seeing him eating anything or touch. Oh, and by the way, I'm talking about 
episodes that are to come. This is all spoiler material. Like in this episode, this is what happens. I'm just dealing with these now because we're dealing with both Giles and Principal Wood in this way. Anyway, he's not dead. <laughs> he's there for days without anyone seeing him eating anything or without touching anything or anyone. So in the end, we're not enjoying a solid twist. We're experiencing a whole setup that does nothing. It accomplishes nothing for the story other than making us fret and be uncomfortable for a few episodes if we're observant or for a few minutes right. if we're not and we didn't know that's when, that he wasn't touching anything. Because if you watch this and you don't notice that Giles isn't touching anything, you've got this, the cliffhanger from Sleeper, but you're like, oh, no, Giles is fine. So we won't get uncomfortable until we get to the episode where they're like, has Giles hugged anybody? Right. You know? Which, yeah. come on. <laughs> Just yes. come on. Yes. And this is the writer lying to the audience just to get them to freak out and then being like, nah, it was nothing. Don't even worry about it. Right. Which is all dumb. Um, we're doing all this work, all this setting up, all this lying for nothing. And when I say lying, I mean writer lying to audience, which is always bad, always bullshit. Hate that. Um, there's absolutely nothing actually happening here. And it's a waste of my time. Same thing with Principal Wood, except it's even stupider. Although it's a variation of this exact same thing. We see him finding a dead fucking body in the school basement, calmly burying said body, making an excuse when he bumps into Buffy in the basement. And then this whole stupid grin on his face when he's talking about mysteries and how he likes to see how it all turns out in the very end all for nothing this is directly lying to the audience principal wood is new we would have been suspicious of him no matter what because we don't know him and pretty much everyone we don't know on buffy is up to no good that's generally how it goes yep. um but as we'll find out wood is a solid dude no way is he gonna grin and smile about the mystery and stare through creepy venetian blinds at buffy um he's gonna try to figure her out the smile belongs to the person who knows exactly what's going on everything is going to his plan <laughs> But he's not. He doesn't have a plan. He's just trying to figure out what the fuck's going on with the Slayer and figure out what side she's on and what's going on and all of this stuff. It is stupid and dumb. And usually Buffy as a show is a great example of how to tell stories. But sometimes it's a horrible warning. So <laughs> this is all stupid and bad and should have never happened that's my that's my whole story lecture on the secrets, lies, and misunderstandings and Mister X. It's yeah. just the stinkiest. Like, there's just no reason for it. It's it's yeah, the whole thing stinks. It is. It's it, it don't is. do it, guys. Don't do it. It's very dumb. It's very dumb, and it's very bad. Uh, but into our character discussion. Yes. Let's go ahead and start out easy. Let's start with Andrew. <laughs> oh my god, Andrew, still trying to narrativize his way out of everything. Like it just never mm -hmm. it just never ends. It's just like yeah. that is his personality. Um I love I do love him like not understanding the first and then yeah. being like the first what? <laughs> but I wish that Tom Link had hit the first what? A little differently. Like, I, I like that line. And then they go into the discussion mm -hmm. about, you know, a villain yeah. should have a villain name. Um, yes. Because Andrew still trying to explain mm -hmm. everything through narrative, trying to explain the world himself. His, like, yes. his whole thing about, like, I'm good again. And Buffy's like, when were you ever good? And he's like, well, <laughs> actually, <laughs> he just can't. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair you enough. Know, yeah, no, there is not an antibiotic in the world strong enough to knock out Andrew's narrativitis. Like, there is just no way he's getting away with that. He is constantly stuck within the narrative. And that's actually part of his charm. And then I love that we we play that through in Storyteller, which is really nice, because it's not until post-Storyteller that you see Andrew really start to engage with reality. But here he is, classic Andrew. I'm good now. When were you ever good? Okay, fair enough. But like... I just want to be untied so that I don't have to hear it get eaten by the first when it comes yeah. to kill all of yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. Know? Trying to come up with yeah. an epic story for himself mm -hmm. and then just just flailing and ending on these ropes itch. Like you just yes. like these ropes itch as a counterpoint to this intense narrativizing <laughs> of evil yes. and a and redemption and all of that. And I'm like Oh, wow. Your life really, like, your real life really is very small. Your life boils down to these ropes itch. And yeah, that's just, I mean, 
poor Andrew. Like, <laughs> like just poor Andrew. I don't know. It's just not fun to be him. And his whole, I didn't do anything. It's always, I didn't do anything. This wasn't me. I'm, I'm like, like, oh God, I love it. I still kind of, I still kind of love it. And I'm mm-hmm. still stuck on the, it wasn't me as like, he's both, it's both reality, but not reality for him. And he doesn't. Yeah. yeah, he's he's a, a fun character. I mean, Andrew, for all of his faults and whatever, he is an interesting, complex character who is, you know, like we do this whole like nerdy thing like, ooh, look at the nerd. He knows who Dr. Doom is like, you know, that that's supposed to be. But like, it really is about storytelling and how powerful storytelling is. And I kind of love that part of Andrew's character. I love the way that he is. Um, he is engaging in narrative to the point where it actually does become a disease for him. Um, and I just, I love it. And I don't know that I've seen that play done with a lot of characters before. Yeah. You know? I'm racking like my it. brain and I can't think of, Another character who functions that way, maybe Abed on Community, a little bit, a little bit, a little, a little bit, bit. In yeah, that, no. like using using narrative and storytelling and and film and television to make meaning out of life. So one of the other things that I absolutely loved in this episode was bringing back Drew. You know, and the thing that I love so much about this is that this is how good Juliet Landau is. The first Drew is different enough from the actual Drew that we can tell. Like, it's subtle, but first Drew acts almost like a fanfic or a cosplay version of Drew. It takes on her overdone affectations, but doesn't quite get them exactly right. Um, And so there's something about it, both in the way that she's written and in the way that Juliet plays her, I think is such a beautifully, like, dexterous use of the performance and the writing to get this cosplay version of her. Um, I think it's fucking fantastic. I love anything with Drusilla because when you have Drusilla in a scene, whether she's, like, real Drusilla or this fanfic Drusilla, which I love, by the way, side like side note, the first mm-hmm. as fan fiction is fascinating. Oh, the first would be a, a total f- Drew fan. Yeah. Yes. The first would love Drew. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this like anytime you have Drusilla in a scene, like you just get to go off the rails, which I yeah. love. But I, I you're absolutely right. Like she's different from mm-hmm. real Drew. And I love that Spike talks to her like she's Drusilla, but also says, you're not Drusilla. And she starts to laugh and says, no, I'm really not. And it just <laughs> delights <laughs> me. Like, I don't even know. Bad daddy. I don't, yes. yeah, bad daddy needs a caning. I'm like, oh, man. This is just like, stra- like Juliet Lando shows up and just like strap in. Like, it's going to yeah. be bananas she's so damn good but this like i'm really not like i don't know Mm -hmm. there's something about that that's so so good and yet spike continues to engage with the first as drusilla kind of like it is drusilla which well yeah wouldn't that be comforting I mean, mean, as much as Drew, like Drew is such a big part, you know, like imagine that there had been somebody in your life that you had loved who was no longer a part of your life and they show up and they're not really them, but you can pretend that they're them because you're getting beat up by an Uber vamp. Like that is, I think, something that everybody can identify with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love, I mean. It's comforting. Well, and I love the first relationship with Spike. Mm -hmm. In that, like, how the first appears to Spike at different times is fascinating. And I haven't broken that down completely. Mm-hmm. But maybe as we move forward through the season, I will look at that in a little bit more depth. Because there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. The relationship between the two. And I still don't, I'm still not fully clear on, like, what, like, why we're, tr- like, why we spend so much time with 
Spike and the first in this episode, but we do. Yeah. I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's honestly, it's just, it's that little bit of sorbet you have between, it's the palate (laughs) cleanser that you have between the, uh, yeah, it's just, it does nothing. It's not moving the story forward. It's not doing anything. It's just a little bit of fun that we can have so we can get to Spike saying she believes in me, which is his character moment. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. And the the Drusilla Buffy contrast, I guess, is kind of implicit in all of that but yeah it's we just had Juliet Landau and so we had some fun with her but it doesn't it doesn't have a story purpose really yeah you know yeah so but yeah well I don't know um we also have now we have brought in our potentials which is a story element that I I love the idea of the potentials I do Um, what did you think about this I love Mm -hmm. the potentials I love the potentials. The potentials are my favorite thing about season seven. Mm -hmm. I love them so much. But I'm so curious about how how this happens, right? Because, like, was there a policy change in the Watchers Council at some point? Like, do all potential slayers now have Watchers assigned to them? Are the potentials informed ahead of time now? Because Buffy was just, like, buffing along when her watcher showed up and sprang the news on her you know <laughs> right. like she had no mm-hmm. idea but these these young women talk about their watchers or like they they clearly know some of what's going on kennedy mm-hmm. had enough of a relationship with her watcher that she refers to my watcher mm-hmm. so i don't know like I, i'm just like okay so something something so happened not- behind the scenes right so not every potential has a watcher but some do but buffy didn't and buffy just happened to get called yeah like kendra also had a watcher so we had that part of this culture that like the potential slayers had watchers before they were called um i don't i i don't i like none of it really makes all that much sense the thing about the watchers is that as soon as you start asking questions about the watchers council it becomes so dark and inept you know oh yeah dark and incompetent it is it is the ultimate combination of evil and incompetence Um, oh yeah and there's no system in place there's nothing going on it's clearly fully funded because it's got that whole big building that ends up getting blown up right and they can fly you know 12 watchers over in checkpoint to interrogate everybody you know the whole thing is so weird um it's and when it gets blown up i'm like okay right fair enough let's get rid of it because it just does it's just weird it's it's odd it's inconsistent it's both extremely well organized and extremely incompetent at the same time like it's it's yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense but whatever this whatever Mm -hmm. this shift is that happened behind the scenes so that now we know who the potentials all are and they Mm -hmm. can get to know each other I am into it. I love it. And I love this mix of young women that we get in this episode. We have Annabelle, Mm -hmm. who's the well-behaved, faux, mature young woman who's a lot more frightened than she's letting on. the worst English accent I have ever heard. She's from Orlando. I looked her up because I was like, no way is that an actual British person. Yeah. uh, God bless her. What is it? Okay, what is it with this show? Like giving people accents they have no business having. I'm looking at you, Kendra. Like they did her so wrong as Irish Liam, whose 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 badness in that accent is of legend. You know, (laughs) terrible. What are we doing? What are we doing? Get a dialect coach. Spike, when he first came in, his accent was terrible. And then he smoothed it out and it all kind of like, you know, he's good now. But yeah, that took a little while. And like nobody was, you know, walking these people through their dialect. Apparently not. Or just like, it was was pretty awful. I don't know. Uh, There's no British actresses in Los Angeles at all. Like, I find that hard to believe. Cast somebody with the accent you want or just like let people Mm -hmm. use whatever their voice is. Like, if it's, I don't know, whatever, whatever. But, Whatever. Annabelle, I mean, Annabelle strikes me as the most like Buffy like of the mm-hmm. the potentials. You know, she's got her yeah. like 
kind of she's kind of got this like good girl thing going on she's a little bit of a kind of a little bit of a mom figure to the group Mm -hmm. she's got her cross necklace that she clutches as she's running away i'm like all right i see like a little bit of baby buffy here and then we have molly Mm -hmm. the technically an adult who is still very much a child's sweetheart (laughs) who i just love in her fuzzy pink coat when they show up Mm -hmm. i'm just like oh honey like i just want to Sweet little thing. I just want to like yeah. wrap her up. Like she's so, so dear. And then Kennedy, who is the tough practical faith stand in because we couldn't just get faith back, I guess. I don't know. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> Kennedy is interesting to me because she's the most slayery of the potential slayers. Yes. Like she's the one mm-hmm. who points out that weapons might be a good idea, that the sure. house isn't exactly the safest spot, and that they're essentially mm-hmm. camped out on the Hellmouth. You know, her mm-hmm. whole like that's it. That's the plan. I don't see how mm-hmm. one person, even a slayer, could protect us. Kennedy yeah. makes some excellent points. She does. She's smart. And she's, I like that about Kennedy. And she's also the one who seeds the idea that we need more than just one slayer, mm-hmm. which Willow will go on to make a reality and queer women will save the world. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Yeah, she kind of has that Anya element, right, of speaking the truth and giving us the idea that ends up saving the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy is also the first to notice Buffy's injuries when Giles and Buffy get back to the house and she says, are you all right? Mm -hmm. I like the potentials a lot. I like that Buffy treats them like peers. Giles wants to Mm -hmm. keep them totally out of the loop. But Buffy welcomes them with all the knowledge of what's going on. She has, yeah. you know, she has Giles just do his exposition dump right there in front of everybody. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, she says, welcome to the war room, guys. Mm-hmm. And this was before the like, we just declared war. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. OK, <laughs> take a seat, Braveheart. Like, it's fine. <laughs> but. Then Annabelle, yeah. like, grabs her little notepad and starts yeah. to, and I'm just like, oh, the whole, this, the whole implied story of, like, these young women, and then, of course, what's going to, you know, what keeps coming with the potential. I just, I, I love it. I love, my favorite thing about season seven, I love, love, love all of these young women so much. It makes me so happy. Uh, yeah. I love the idea of them. I love and I love at the end that everybody I hear what's coming. Gets... <laughs> I do love the idea of them. Annabelle f- to my taste was a little too school marmy. Like no, the 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 Buffy Slayer says this and just listen and she's always telling everybody else what to do. And uh Molly Molly I like. Uh, Molly is cute and sweet in her. She's just a, this little girl who's like, okay, I guess I'm going to be killed now by guys with bedazzled knives or whatever. Right, you know. yeah. Um, and the thing is that Kennedy is exactly the character that I would ordinarily love. Honestly, I would. She's smart. She's forthright. She speaks her mind. You know, like all of these things I really like. But I've always hated Kennedy and every time I watch it, I think maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time where I will not fucking hate Kennedy. And the thing is, it all comes down to one thing. Um, I've never liked her. It's not because she's not Tara. She shouldn't be Tara. The worst mistake that a TV show makes is getting rid of one character or a character leaves and then they just bring in another one that's just like them. You know, it's just a, a, exactly the same character, but just with a different person playing them. I hate that. And I think that's a bad idea. So this is really good. You can't replace Tara. It shouldn't be like Tara. But I hate the way that Kennedy is almost immediately predatory with Willow. She is not flirting with Willow. She is deciding that she is going to have Willow because she wants Willow. And the fact that Willow is completely uncomfortable with this whole thing doesn't even matter to her. She puts herself in Willow's room, in Willow's bed. And if a man was doing this, we would all be squicked. But because it's a woman, we decide it's cute. She can't be dangerous. So whenever a woman is predatory, be it in a heterosexual or a homosexual environment, you know, in situation um we always decide that it's really super cute like when women slap men in the face oh that's really cute like no that's physical abuse i don't care who's doing the slapping it's always bad and to, to look at kennedy and think it's so cute that she's being predatory because she's tiny and she's a girl like 
No. Um, and sexual assertiveness is one thing, but sexual aggression is another. And this feels aggressive to me. They've known each other for about five minutes. So this isn't about Willow. This is about conquest. And, you know, there are so many things that I like about Kennedy. I like that she knows who she is. I like that she understands her flaws, which is something we will see later. Um, this is a first impression. We've known her for about 30 seconds. And I never got over what she does to Willow in this. I hope that you don't steal the blankets and then goes on. <laughs> And then Willow's like all wigged out by it, you know, uh, Willow clearly isn't ready for it. Fucking slow your roll, Kennedy. <laughs> so funny. I read that interaction yeah. completely differently. OK, I read yeah. it completely differently. I don't see I don't see anything predatory in that scene. OK, what I mm -hmm. see is Kennedy is doing Kennedy's gaydar has gone off. <laughs> Uh -huh. And Kennedy yes. is doing the, like, I see, like, I am letting you know very subtly that I am another queer, queer person in this situation. I, okay. I would subtly. Yeah. Subtly? Yes. That's to me, subtle? It's, to me, it reads as subtle okay. because there's nothing, okay. there's nothing malicious in what she does. It's very, to me, it, it does read very cute and not in a. And and yes, in a mm -hmm. she's a woman way, but not but she's a queer woman specifically, and there needs to mm -hmm. be some. Um, it is it's it is a delicate, a delicate operation of the. I am going to reveal to this other queer person who, or this other person I suspect is queer that I am also queer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I, I, wa I watched that scene very, very closely because I remembered this yeah. being the subject of, like, making people uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe this is a, you know, everybody's bathing suit is kind of a different shape when it comes to, like, what mm -hmm. they find inappropriate and not. But I yeah. I see that her little smile seems very friendly to me. It doesn't seem like... I don't yeah, she's following Willow around saying all the reasons why none of the other girls can be in Willow's room and then when she says I'm going to be in your room she doesn't say I'm going to sleep on the floor she says I'm going to sleep in the bed with you she says that she like, says but it's in this it's a I don't know I read it in a cute it reads yeah. it reads I mean it's a flirt but it doesn't seem it doesn't seem inappropriate to me I think that if Willow was into it, like Willow is clearly wigged She's, and I don't know, all of it just seems, I don't, I don't care for it. I it read always, that. It always rubs me the wrong I way. I read that as rattled in a, oh, there's another queer person here kind mm -hmm. of way. Yeah. That Willow, mm -hmm. Kennedy, Kennedy has clocked Willow, but Willow is not, you know, Willow. I think mm -hmm. rightfully is just like not in that headspace at all. She's in the helping Buffy mode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I don't know. This is I'm going to get I'm going to get canceled on Twitter for this. But I don't I don't know. You're it. not. I'll get canceled because I'm being all homophobic. Well, I don't right? see it as a, I <laughs> don't see anything. Yeah. Mm, I don't I see it as flirtation. She's okay. forward, but not. I don't know. I don't know. And this is this moment, right? Like I'm zoomed in on this moment. Right. Um, yeah. To me, this just seems like I am, I am subtly, not subtly, like telling mm -hmm. you a a suspected queer woman that I am also a queer woman. That's okay. how I read that. Okay. But like, I really, right. I will be very curious to see what other people's reads are on that i don't know but it's 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 really it's an interesting thing though because i know that if a man behaved this way i wouldn't but, like it okay but you know? see that is so heterocentrist in that yeah. this idea that we can just like i don't know we can just like body swap things and just that gender flip changes mm -hmm. the you know that like the rules i don't know I don't know. I guess what I'm saying, though, is that the rules shouldn't change based on gender. But maybe maybe what I'm missing is the the queer context of the communication 
that needs to be super clear well, if, because otherwise it could be missed. If is that everyone is presumed heterosexual. Yeah. If everyone is presumed heterosexual, you never have to come out as heterosexual. So this would right. be inappropriate if this were a heterosexual flirtation. Mm-hmm. It would come across as inappropriate because heterosexuality is the default. Is the default presumption. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's again, and like this is this is my read. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and that which is not to say that like you know, not trying to say at all that like all queer people are like super chill about sharing a bed with another queer person just because they're queer and like right. it's fine. But you don't mm-hmm. But if you are straight, you never have to come mm-hmm. out as straight. Yeah. Whereas if I want to signal to someone that I think might also be a queer person, like, mm-hmm. hey, I too am queer. <laughs> like, there has to be some. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's that's how. Because how are you going to find each other, right? Especially in the days of Diet right. Google. Like, it's still Diet Google. <laughs> so it still yeah. has mm-hmm. to be, it's still very much like the queerness in me bows to the queerness in you. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like okay. I am telling you that I'm, I mean, I don't know. This is so much ado about this tiny little interaction, but I was like laser focused no, on it because I remember though. it being a thing that, uh, that mm-hmm. you know, many people you included find like really inappropriate and i was like okay i'm gonna watch for it because like what is actually said and done in this scene and for me just me i think this is chill and good and kind of wholesome and cute to me willow being rattled is very much more about like oh wow okay like now i'm suddenly in my like oh someone sees my my identity mm-hmm. essentially all right i mean well no i really appreciate that and i'm glad that we went into it in detail because i think that it helps me kind of like i'm always worried about saying the wrong thing but i think sometimes i need to say the wrong thing or i'm not going to learn anything right so um so the thing is i think that what i'm doing is i'm looking at heterosexual and homosexual relationships as though they are exactly the same thing and i'm just gender flipping and swapping and holding the same standard to both where in a queer relationship and in queer situations where you cannot presume a default, you have other hurdles that you need to deal with socially and that that might create a situation where certain things that might be inappropriate to me, you know, coming in a heterosexual context can actually be maybe necessary in a homosexual context. Am I understanding that right? I mean, there have to be different modes of communicating when okay like yeah, when fair. when you're when you're like baseline who you are mm-hmm. is not the default you're starting from you're starting from a different position i guess in terms mm-hmm. of expected dynamics because what i imagine would happen if we were doing this if we were doing a heterosexual relationship with these characters first of all it wouldn't start this way at all mm-hmm. <laughs> at all at all at all um mm-hmm. but we, if we were if we were going to do something that was like i don't know not the standard not not the not the standard expected gender boxes for male and female i mean yeah. actually i think willow and oz are a great example of that Mm-hmm. Willow and Oz don't do the like cookie cutter gender bread version mm-hmm. of a male female couple. Right. And that relationship comes about differently than we might see with a I fucking hate this word, but traditional boy meets girl mm-hmm. kind of dynamic. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm also like, again, just me, just me. I am mm-hmm. also right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just me. Uh, I am also a queer person who's very much like, no, queer people are not just like straight people. And that's the point. 
Yes. And I think that that's actually a really valuable thing. Well, and so often, so often we do see the like, we don't have to take XYZ seriously because she's a woman like that is rampant in. Yes. uh, I was going to say in fiction, but it's also like rampant in the world for for good Mm -hmm. and ill. Right. Like we don't take I complain about this all the time on this very podcast. We don't take. (laughs) women's desire seriously mm-hmm. so it becomes the butt yeah. of the joke or it becomes yeah. something that we can look down on because mm-hmm. you know a girl with a crush or whatever is not a serious thing it's just some yeah you know there's just some girls with their feelings or whatever so yeah yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. This is going to be an interesting conversation to continue as we go. <laughs> but I really appreciate your perspective on that. And thank you for that. Um, all right. So now we move into Giles, right? Yes. You know, uh, Giles is back and it's good to have Giles back. But as I've discussed, fucking hate everything about it. <laughs> Every- I love Giles. I hate everything about the way that he's brought back. Uh, that is also some serious exposition, very dialogue that Anthony Stewart had had to deliver on his first day back at work. So damn, I do not envy him. Uh, but it's, you know, but on the other hand, like, uh, yay, Giles is back. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, we get some Giles. And of course, Giles is like back in Giles mode just immediately. Mm-hmm. Just. Yep. Fully Giles. Great, great. Giles, just Giles in the just place up. Giles in left and right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, so now we've got the, the you know, the little discussion of the council. We'll just do a little aside. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean okay. So mm-hmm. Giles, Giles is the one who tells us all, you know, that the council is no more. Right. And I kind of mm-hmm. love the sort of cold-hearted implication that we're not sad about all the loss of human life with the council building being blown up. Um, But we are very upset about the loss of the library. Yes. And the books. I mean, the books, man. We lost Mm -hmm. the books. We lost the references. What are we going to do now? Like, you know, like, yes, yes, Mm -hmm. a bunch of people died, but also, you know, think of the books. Yeah. Um, Think of the books. But the books. But I love, I love Anya assuming Giles blew up the council building. <laughs> That's what happens when you're all repressed. Right? <laughs> and he just like shoots her this look like, oh God, here we go again. Like almost yep. like he had forgotten how much he did not enjoy interacting with Anya and her particular flavor of mm-hmm. bluntness and assumption. <laughs> yeah it's just yeah yeah but it is i mean we don't know we don't know what we're doing with the council ever on this show we we talked about that already like they're very serious but they're also very not serious they can Mm -hmm. do like i don't know i don't know i don't know and you just destroy them and get them out of the game and then you're like okay we don't have to talk about these people anymore right right. we just etch a sketch end of the watchers council just as well yeah yeah, but I, but I wonder though. Do you think that the bombs that blew up the Watchers Council were also bedazzled? <laughs> Just like fancy, like bringer bombs, all glittery, like yeah. shiny with like a key light on them. Shiny. I don't know. Yeah, yes, probably. I think so. Probably. I think it should be. I think if you're gonna bedazzle a knife, you can also bedazzle a bomb. It's not like the bringers have a whole lot to do aside from murdering young girls. Right. Um. So I love uh, Xander. I love construction Xander. I love Xander who's like, you know what? Fucking I'm not replacing these windows again. Yeah. And just boards up the place. You know, so I appreciate that. Definitely. I also Um, love him. Yeah. I love the stuff with Xander and Andrew. Like getting Uh excited over Wonder Woman comics together. And then Xander being like, damn it. Like (laughs) just like mad that he related (laughs) to Andrew on something. Yeah. And Andrew saying, how long have you followed Buffy? And Xander goes, mm-hmm. she's my friend. Like, what? like you really don't <laughs> know how to relationship, do you, friend? Like, you just don't. No. But Andrew is basically, like, um, is basically Xander. Like, in a lot of ways. A little bit, you know? yeah. He's kind of a doppelganger antagonist, sort of, for Xander. He's a in foil that he's, for he's Xander, showing, yeah. 
He's showing Xander who Xander is. He's holding a mirror up to Xander, up to certain parts of Xander. Oh, I really which, like um, that. Which I think is always fun. I really like that, mm-hmm. actually, uh, Andrew as a foil for Xander. I wonder if they yeah. keep that going. I'm going to watch for that. It's interesting. I think Xander definitely does see himself in in Andrew. Um, and one of the things that we don't have in our notes, and I can't believe I don't have it in my notes, is Spike. We have this Spike oh, yeah. and Drew stuff, which is wonderful and fabulous, you know. And then we get to this whole, you know, I'm done with you because she believes in me. Like, yeah. Okay. So really? on the one hand... <laughs> On the one hand, I'm like, okay, so here is Spike who has been wrestling with his identity as a as a person who can ever be, you know, like the classic example of good, right? Even though with everything he's done, can he ever be good? Can he ever do good, right? That is a question that he has been wrestling with his identity since getting his soul back. And now we have this moment where he's like, it's okay because she believes in me. And on the one hand, as, you know, somebody that loves Spike and Buffy, I'm like, oh, that's so. And on the other hand, I'm like, dude, no, believe in yourself because you know you can do it, not because a pretty girl told you you can do it, you know? <laughs> so I'm kind of torn on both of these things. Do you fall anywhere? Where in that spectrum do you fall? Or do you fall in an entirely different place? I mean, I don't know. That, that whole line to me feels very, very written. Yes. To the point Mm -hmm. that I just kind of uh, not quite roll my eyes at it, but it just feels like like I knew this was coming. (laughs) Like I'm not Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised by it, but I'm also just not particularly moved by it. Like it's fine. It kind of does that story thing that a lot of you know love stories like to do it's fine yeah um that she completes me she, yeah. her belief in me makes me a complete man yeah and i mean i, mean, I think sure. that like sure yeah and also like that's i mean i yeah it's not you know it's not not a real thing right having somebody that you know believes in you you know somebody who- right but rather than have him say i think it's that he says it yeah i would rather see him tell drew right now i know i can be a good man and I know I have the power to do that. Yeah. Without saying anything about Buffy. You know, like it's just it's too on the nose. It's too yeah. in front of you to see him change because he's changing. Uh, and and that we can make the connection that, oh, she said she believes in him and now he can believe in himself. Yeah. Like, OK. But the fact that he is like she says. Right. You know, feels a little. I mean, Campus-y. although, you know, at the same time. At the same time, you know, he's been getting the snot beat out of him all day <laughs> by Cuthbert. So, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a moment that I both like and don't like. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, we're it's just, a little we bit, really are yeah. just like, I mean, treading water with Spike. Coloring by numbers, it feels like. Yeah. Right? This is the part, we color this part orange and let's just color it orange because somebody told us to and that's how it's always been done and then we'll move forward. We got to see Spike um, being tortured just, and then like resisting the torture mm-hmm. because of like the love of a good woman or something. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> like, that's always just a little bit weird. I don't know. Um, okay, so we have we have Willow messing with the dark forces again, yeah. like doing her magic and then the first, I guess, takes, takes her, her over. over and there's this whole thing like the first cannot affect things cannot be corporeal um the first cannot be um you know can only appear as dead people can't touch anything but it can also possess willow and make her barf a monster through the computer Um, question mark right i guess what yeah because the light I, I, i don't know it's such a weird it's a weird thing it's a, it, and it's so like again over the top a little bit much pull it back a little bit um but i cannot see this scene you know which is so like willow's all buffy don't let me yeah. don't let it make me hurt people and da, da, da. it's such a huge moment for willow that we sort of just kind of like glaze past but also like i always think about that later you know when kennedy says so uh what does evil taste like and she's like kind of chalky like it always <laughs> it always makes me think of that so whenever i see this i always kind of laugh at how cute that line that line will be yes when we get to yes it, when know. we get there now i do like the i like establishing that no we really can't use willow because she's not trying to do any sort of big powerful Mm -hmm. 
you know, right. dark, whatever, whatever. She is trying to do a locator spell. Mm-hmm. We've done this yeah. before. It's been fine. Mm-hmm. But this is like, no, we really cannot use Willow's magic. Mm-hmm. That is out. Right. Like, And mm-hmm. I appreciate that detail. But the, yeah, the first can take her over through her laptop. I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I guess it's just, it's a weird thing. It's like the first can only, like, we, we spend this whole time with all this exposition dumping that we make Giles do. And so Giles in this scene is probably like, I just did the exposition dumping about what the first can and cannot do. Yeah. And now we have this weird extra power that the first has to just take over Willow if she does not whatever. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. It was all weird. Um, we also have Buffy dreaming of Joyce. And yeah. thinking Joyce is the first, but it's a dream. But is it the? But is it the first? And then Joyce saying, "You can't fight this unless you rest." And in the next breath, saying, "Wake up, right?" Um, and then we have Joyce. Evil is always here, Buffy. Yada yada yada. So, is Joyce the first, or is Joyce a dream, an imagination that Buffy is having of Joyce? I. I'm completely on the fence here. I don't know. Yeah. Do we know? Do we have anything else? Yeah, I don't remember. Do we have anything else about the first and dreams? No, I don't because think so. To, I mean, the first shows up in waking Yeah, hours. because to me, if it's a dream, it's Buffy. Right. And not the first. Except that what Joyce is saying is very first. It is. It's it's very you have to rest you can't fight this thing it's too evil evil's always here right so it's self doubt um, I guess it's it's her her fear it's the manifestation of her fear that the first will come to her as her mother maybe is it I mean I'm guessing like that would be probably my guess yeah because she says to Joyce you're the first right so it's the fear. I think it's meant to be that, like, Buffy is super on edge about all of this Mm -hmm. and just, like, waiting for everything to be an evil Mm -hmm. trick at this point. Yeah. Um, And, I mean, that would be your biggest fear, right? You know, if you knew that there was this evil thing that could appear to you as someone you love... Yeah. Then the most devastating loss of your life would be the first thing you would think of. Right. You know? So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I haven't quite... My, my, my guess is that it's Buffy worried that the first is going to come to her as Joyce. And then imagining, dreaming what that interaction would be like. But it does it does feel a little bit weird. And also we have two. Yeah. Like a three beat is always the way you go. You do two to establish and, yeah. and then the last one to subvert. Um, and then we don't do this. We just have these two dreams that are basically both the same, con- the different shades of the same kind of conversation. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It all, it all feels weird. And again, like kind of like the Spike and Drew first scenes, like... It doesn't really, it doesn't really add up to anything. Like it's not really doing. It's not anything. doing anything. It's just we're having this, we're having this moment, and we get to see Joyce, we get to see Christine Sutherland come back. So that's always nice. Yeah. But yeah. But again, it's not. It, no- uh, it nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. This, no, nothing. This happens, episode is a nothing a sandwich. Like, there's nothing. Nothing happens in this episode. <laughs> nothing happens. Nothing happens. It is mayonnaise on white bread. That's all it is. Um, okay, so fa- finishing this up. We've got Cuthbert, right? <laughs> Who we have named Birdie to his friends, Birdie. right? Yeah. Um, so we have Birdie played by the amazing Camden Toy. Um, there's no personality really no. to the to Cuthbert. Like it's not like Gnarl, yeah. you know, who was such full of personality, and Camden Toy freaking killed it as Gnarl. Um, but you know, in fairness, Cuthbert definitely scary, which is great. Yeah. Um, I don't particularly care for the direction that they took this. Of course, we're coming back to the familiar physical fight rather than a psychological fight. Uh, but I can't fault the performance, and it's great to have Camden Toy back. Yeah, and I love the moment. Yeah. I do love the moment where she stakes him he pulls the stake out and then just kind of looks at her <laughs> that's like, a good moment 
Yeah. yeah. Like, here we go. It's- and again, it reminds me of that Urukai moment in the end of the Fellowship of the Ring when he gets stabbed with the sword. He just pulls it all the way through him because he's such a badass, yeah. you know? And it's like, it's very reminiscent of that. But I actually think, no, this was after that. Because that was 2001, I think. Anyway. Oh, I don't anyway, remember. Anyway, whole point is, <laughs> Turrican, Urukai, not a, not a lot of daylight between these two ideas. Um, all right. So, Noelle, bring it on for all of its, ugh, yeah. you know, what's your favorite part? Oh, it is the moment in the kitchen where the potentials are looking for food and... Mm-hmm. It, it's the it's the communion communion of biscuits slash cookies. Yes, getting out mm-hmm. the getting out the the cookies after the mac and cheese has been mm-hmm. burnt, and everybody. You know, uh, is it Molly mm-hmm. who says, "Do you mind?" And yes. Don says, "No, mm-hmm. I could go for a cookie myself." And I'm just like, "Yeah," mm-hmm. because in that moment, I mean, it's very very sweet, and I love you know I love seeing all of them in the house together. But in that moment, like they're kids again for a minute, mm-hmm. like they're just yeah. gonna have cookies for dinner, and I'm like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's the end of the world, <laughs> but cookies for <laughs> dinner and just like being being kids together. And I love it. Yeah. it makes me happy. It's very sweet. What about you? Very What's your sweet. favorite part? Uh, cosplay Drew. Gotta be Cosplay <laughs> Drew. I love it. <laughs> Bad daddy. You're not Drusilla. No, I'm really not. <laughs> That's so good. Love it. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, follow at Chipperish on Twitter and use the hashtag #StillPretty. Or as a Patreon supporter at any level, you can join the Chipperish Discord group and chat live with other listeners and the hosts. Patreon supporters get access to exclusive content like Let's Watch Roulette, where Lonnie and Ian Martin from Passion of the Nerd react to a randomly chosen movie or TV show for $5 and up supporters, while $10 and up supporters get to attend show recordings live. And we've got a new stretch goal. Once we hit 500 subscribers, we'll unlock the monthly chip chat where Lonnie will host a private one hour Zoom call open to every supporter to talk about whatever. So if you haven't pledged your support yet, now's the time. Speaking of supporters, this episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the Power Producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our Power Producers, I don't think fighting prehistoric evil comes with nap time. While you're waiting for the next episode of Still Pretty, here are some things you can do. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or make the hellmouth choke on you. We will be back next time with Showtime, the 11th episode of Season 7. Until then, see? This is what happens when you're all stuffy and repressed. You overreact. You overreact.